From KALW in San Francisco, I'm Angie Coiro, and this is In Deep, one full hour on one intriguing topic. Robert Reich has immersed himself in the U.S. economy for decades. He served in the administrations of three presidents, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and Bill Clinton. He was on Barack Obama's transition team of advisors. He's a prolific book author, beginning in 1982, with Minding America's Business. His latest was released earlier this year, The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fix It. Reich is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. He co-founded the American Prospect, where he serves as chairman. He's a widely published commentator in both print and broadcast. When he speaks, people take note. His personal appearances fill theaters. He has one million followers on Twitter. His take on today's America is nuanced. On the one hand, he believes the ultimate battle isn't left versus right, but between the larger populace and the oligarchy. But he doesn't hedge when talking about Donald Trump. He says the 2020 election comes down to democracy versus fascism. Robert Rice joined me for an online conversation sponsored by Kepler's Literary Foundation on June 23rd of this year. First topic, his new book, The System. You paint a picture of the fix that we're in, but not just as the outcome of corporations. This time around, you get really specific about people who are behind the corporations. Jamie Dimon comes off really badly. He's a multi-gazillionaire who says one thing about economic justice, then he does another. Carl Icahn comes off even worse. He's a guy who doesn't even give it mouth service. So why the emphasis this time on individuals in the first part of the book? Uh, Mainly because it's easier to illustrate the problems that are systemic. And the reason I call the book The System is because really these are systemic problems. If you eliminated certain people from the world, and I'm not suggesting we do, but even if you eliminated certain people I mentioned in the book, uh, you're not gonna fix the systemic problems. But they do illustrate something. Jamie Dimon, for example, uh, calls himself a Democrat. Uh, Mm -hmm. He has a reputation of doing some very important and very positive things with regard to his own uh, charitable work and the work of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase in terms of uh, black communities and uh, communities of color and poverty. But what I want to get at is even a somebody who styles himself as a Democrat, who says that he is a liberal and progressive and does things that are actually, you would expect a progressive to do, structurally, systemically, he is playing a role that works against everything he professes. Mm-hmm. Well, you say it doesn't really come down to left versus right, although that's the way most of us see the country now. There's, there's a gulf between the left and right that, that almost can't be mended anymore. But you say it's about oligarchy versus democracy. Exactly. Uh, because I, I, you know, I've been in and out of government uh, for a long time. My first job was as an intern in Robert F. Kennedy's Senate office in 1967. Uh, and even then, uh, there was a big, big debate between the so-called left and the right about the size of government. And the left wanted a more robust government and the right wanted a smaller government. Uh, But that debate, that old debate, that 50-some-odd-year debate that we have had in this country, and actually uh, it started in the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration, uh, it's no longer the biggest question facing us politically. As wealth has gone to the top, power has also gone to the top, because wealth and power are almost inextricably connected. 
Mm-hmm. And as wealth and power have gone to the top, the real choice we face is not so much the size of government, but who government is working for. Is it working for most of us or is it working for a small group at the top? In other words, the choice is really democracy versus oligarchy. Mm-hmm. We don't want to admit that to ourselves. And certainly uh, people like Jamie Dimon, who are members of the oligarchy, the new American oligarchy, who are Democrats, uh, certainly don't want to admit that. But that really is what we see, what we experience every day. Mm-hmm. There was a graphic in Saving Capitalism that I thought was very effective because you can feel, one can feel detached from all this information about the economy. And it was illustrated beautifully when you talked about recovering from bankruptcy, recovering from student loans, recovering from being underwater. And you showed this graph of where, you know, a little house where people could go and get their loans. And the banks went in and got rescued and the corporations went in and got rescued. And here come the people common people, regular people who need loans, and the door is shut closed. And it struck me that that graphic applies to an awful lot that the government does for corporations. Well, the the whole notion uh, of corporate welfare uh, is something that I saw close up when I was Secretary of Labor. Uh, I didn't really understand it until I was there in the cabinet. And again and again, I was witness to big money expressing itself even at that cabinet table saying oh well we can't do certain things or we mustn't try to do this or we have to do this Uh, and that big money was changing the rules of the market even as i was sitting there when i say changing the rules of the market i I simply mean this Uh, one of the fictions we keep holding on to is that there is something called the free market over here and then there's something else called government over here and that somehow we've got to choose between the two. And again, liberals tend to choose the government uh, more often than conservatives, and conservatives tend to choose the free market. But actually, the rules of the market are what makes the market. You cannot have a free market without government setting the rules, deciding even the most fundamental things. What's a contract that is legitimate? What is property? What is bankruptcy and who is entitled to declare bankruptcy? What is enforced? What's liability? What are you liable for? Under what circumstances? All of these basic rules of the market make the market and they change over time, Mm -hmm. depending upon who has the power to change them. I mean, we all know that at one point in the nation's history, black people were property. Not all of them, but many of them. Mm -hmm. We changed the rules. Those rules were put in originally by people who owned black people and didn't want to change the rules. Uh, Well, there are many, 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 in fact, millions of other rules, maybe not quite as dramatic, maybe not quite as, and certainly not as important, but they affect the allocation of property and power. And they also determine wealth. Uh, Just one final point on this, Angie. You can see how this can become a vicious cycle Mm -hmm. because as more and more wealth and power go to the top, they, that is the wealthy and the powerful, the oligarchy, and I think it's fair to use that term, has more and more leverage over what the rules of the market are going to be. 
Yes. And when they get more and more power and leverage over what the rules of the market are going to be, that enables them to become even wealthier and more powerful. And you see that over time, that explains a lot of why we have experienced over the past 40 years, this increase in wealth at the top and decrease in wealth and power every other place. Uh, Catherine has a comment that people need to get empowered, know their rights, stand up to our leaders, in quotation marks, and hold them accountable. Accepting corruption became normal with nothing you can do about it. I, I want to kind of piggyback on that because one of my questions is, do we all consider ourselves enough of a part of the government anymore? When a lot of people talk about the government as though it's over there, and of course this is a government of us, is there any way to restore that feeling that we have power within the government? Well, we've got to get big money out of politics for one thing. I mean, again, over the past, certainly my lifetime and my political experience, I've seen a tsunami of big money from big corporations and very wealthy individuals engulf our entire political process. And it was happening even before that shameful Supreme Court case, Citizens United against the Federal Election Commission. Uh, that did open the floodgates, but the floodgates were already open. And again, I saw it. I saw the influence of big money. We can get big money out. And Catherine is absolutely right. I mean, we don't feel like it's our government. We feel alienated from it. Many people feel hopeless uh, and despairing about mm -hmm. that and many other things right now. Uh, but please don't. I, 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 historically, there have been times when we did, we, the people, did take back the government from the oligarchy. We did it uh, at the last time in American history when we had this kind of a problem. Uh, that was the, those were the robber barons in the gilded age of the late 19th and early 20th century. Does it make any difference that the robber barons tended to each be involved in a particular line of work? There were the robber barons with the railroad, there were the robber barons with banking. And now, as you bring up in the book, there are four or five companies that do all kinds of things. Amazon is not just selling books anymore. Um, you have the Comcast and Verizon, et cetera, are, you know, they're all getting into phones and they are taking care of our TV and they're taking care of our internet. Does that distinction make any difference in how we would recover from where we are? Uh, not very much. That is, the robber barons, uh, the big monopolies uh, in steel and railroads uh, and related industries at the end of the 19th, early 20th centuries, they got into everything. Uh, in fact, the financiers like J.P. Morgan, uh, not incidentally, uh, the, <laughs> the forerunner of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, and Jamie Dimon. Uh, but J.P. Morgan uh, himself was in everything. Uh, and J.P. Morgan uh, really did have so much money relative to the, the average person that he's roughly analogous to Jeff Bezos. Uh, and in terms of power over the system, roughly analogous to somebody like Jamie Dimon. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also look at Andrew Mellon, who's an interesting character. And I wish I had had the time to really discuss Andrew Mellon. I mean, you know, these, 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 these robber barons are fascinating people. Uh, but the reason I bring up Andrew Mellon is that Andrew Mellon not only created an extraordinary fortune, but had enough power to change the rules of the game, particularly tax laws. And Andrew Mellon got a change 
under the first Republican administration, Warren G. Harding's administration, uh, to reduce a lot of the taxes that thereby allowed Andrew Mellon to increase his fortune and pass it on to his heirs, his mm -hmm. sons and daughters. And Andrew Mellon's grandson is one of the major backers today of Donald Trump. So it's not that these things go away completely. Yeah, yeah, they perpetuate. They um, perpetuate. Uh, Leonor wants to know, how would you break up the present day monopolies? What kind of legislation would you recommend? And do you worry about a Trump nominated conservative Supreme Court striking that legislation down? Well, I, I worry about a Trump dominated Supreme Court for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and, and, and yes, certainly striking down a, a more vigorous antitrust law, but striking down everything we believe in and, and making uh, our country into a theocracy. I mean, we can, we can get into that in a moment. But with regard to antitrust, uh, up until 1980 or so, that is the Reagan administration, antitrust was still uh, fighting monopolies. The Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department were still taking on big corporations and stopping mergers and busting up AT&T, for example. Uh, but then you had a major shift in government. And it wasn't Republicans versus Democrats. Really, this is another example of where it doesn't matter where you're, whether you're talking about Republicans or Democrats. Uh, even Bill Clinton did not really enforce the antitrust laws. Uh, after Ronald Reagan, big corporations had enough power. The oligarchy had enough influence and wealth and power to basically make antitrust a dead letter make it almost impossible to start breaking up these companies and do it in a variety of ways. I mean, I don't want to go on and on, but I am interested particularly in this subject. And there are ways of, for example, breaking up, let's say, Apple or Facebook or Amazon uh, without necessarily creating a lot of small companies. I mean, you can require them to license their key technologies or some of their key technologies to some competitors, for example, uh, at uh, reasonable thought cost. And those reasonable costs can be determined by a magistrate who's overseeing it. Uh, there are other ways, in other words, of dealing with monopolies, not just requiring that they be split up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to ask you to bear with me while I read something. And this is where we're going to bring COVID into the picture of the economy. This is something I found in the Dallas News uh, from earlier this week. This is kind of a case study in how corporations are tackling COVID. And they're talking about one of the largest hospital change, chains in the country, the tenant hospital change. And how did it respond to COVID? It furloughed 10% of the workers, loaded up liquidity by selling $1.3 billion in secured notes, which boosted its line of credit, and they were hoarding cash. It tapped Uncle Sam in a big way, raising over $2.5 billion from the recent relief programs. So I was curious, and with all of that going on, I looked up the salary of the CEO of Tenet and the company that just furloughed 10% of its workers pays its CEO $15 million a year. It's really hard and sad to put those two thoughts together. Well, it is. Uh, it's not 
the exception. I wish I could say, Angie, it was. It is actually a pretty standard practice. Uh, the biggest companies in America, the Fortune 500 public companies, uh, what they have done in this pandemic is collect as much money as they possibly can. Uh, they've taken advantage of both the treasury program and also something that the Fed is doing in terms of scooping up their debts. Uh, many of those debts, by the way, were created in the years leading up to the pandemic by these big companies because they borrowed like mad in order to buy back their shares of stock, uh, creating kind of a false uh, sugar high for the stock market, which mm -hmm. increased the pay of their CEOs and their top officers. Uh, but they're also, uh, not only are they getting a lot of aid and bailouts and money during this pandemic, but they are doing exactly what Tenant uh, also uh, is doing, and that is they are furloughing and laying off uh, their workers. Uh, and they're doing it in a very, very, I think, a very insidious way. Um, the first level or the first move was to furlough. Uh, right now, and I'm getting today, for example, I, I got a bunch of emails from people who are, I don't know, but they are employees in big companies, and they write me only because I was former Secretary of Labor. Uh, and uh, they, they tell me that they were furloughed with the understanding that they would get their full jobs back again, but now they're being told that they are let go. Uh, right. And they are being let go without anything, without any kind of a, any allowance or any right. money uh, that would provide a severance. Um, and many of them are mid-level uh, managers. Many of them uh, uh, really are affronted by the spectacle of these companies taking all this money from the government on the assumption that they will keep people employed and then firing people. Robert Reich, speaking with me on June 23rd of this year. More to come. I'm Angie Coiro, and this is In Deep. We shall overcome. We shall Yeah, I did 
You're listening to In Deep. I'm Angie Coiro. My conversation with Robert Reich was recorded in June of this year, before the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As well as his new book, The System, we're discussing Saving Capitalism. That's currently on Netflix. The documentary was produced with Jacob Kornbluth. For the moment, though, back to the book. Let's talk about the people who are outside of those corporations. And these are the gig workers. These are the people who, either accepting the idea of the American dream or not, needed to gin up their own money, you know, can't get into the big corporations. So they're out there driving cars. They're out there doing sewing on TaskRabbit. And you can just imagine what's going to happen to these people while COVID is keeping the economy down. Well, yes. I mean, in a way, you have at least four groups of workers who are in completely different positions, but they are all being burdened uh, dramatically by COVID. One group are are the people who are unemployed. uh, And they are okay right now, but their last unemployment checks will be issued uh, probably July 31st. That is when the extra $600 a week unemployment runs out. Uh, The second group are the people who are in so-called essential jobs. Uh, Many of them, healthcare workers, warehouse workers, meatpacking workers, uh, their problem is that they, if they didn't return to work, they would lose their unemployment insurance. Uh, But at the same time, they are often in very unhealthy conditions. And I hear and hear and read reports about them not having the personal protective equipment they need. Uh, You have a third group of people who are, as you say, they are independent contract workers. Uh, They are roughly 20% of the American workforce. Uh, They are, uh, they don't qualify. In many states, they don't qualify for any unemployment insurance at all. They are completely on their own. They have no labor protections whatsoever. Uh, And I would say in many respects, they are in the most precarious position. But then on top of all of them, Angie, you have another group of people we don't even talk about. These are people who are in prison or they are uh, people who are uh, in working in very, very difficult circumstances or they are detained at the border. Uh, They're not workers necessarily. They're people who would like to apply for refugee status Uh, or they are people who are on Indian reservations uh, who are being infected very, very badly and don't have adequate protection. Many of these groups of people, by the way, are disproportionately Black and Latino. Uh, Disproportionately, they have uh, conditions that are pre-existing, health conditions that make them particularly vulnerable to this virus, and they are not being protected. Well, can you talk more about that intersection between class and race? Because I think sometimes that doesn't get addressed enough. Well, there's a huge uh, intersection between class and race. And I don't simply mean that disproportionate number of poor people are Black and Latino, uh, but also uh, as inequality widens and as the middle class crumbles, which is what has essentially happened over the past 40 years, uh, you have uh, uh, people who are who are white and used to be middle class and now are lower middle class, working class, and very, very precarious. Uh, They are not only feeling less generous, but they are easily manipulated by demagogues like our president into thinking that they're, the reason that they are in such precarious situations is because of people like uh, like black people and Latino people and immigrants. uh, And that kind of 
susceptibility to demagoguery, to hate and to resentment uh, is one of the worst aspects of widening inequality. Uh, you know, in the 1950s, I don't want to paint the 1950s as a golden era because there was a lot wrong with America in the 1950s, but at least in the 1950s and 60s, we were trying to become a more equal society and the middle class was growing dramatically in America. We had the largest middle class relative to our population than we had ever had and that any society or civilization has ever had. And because of that, I think um, people were more, more willing to seek uh, social justice in terms of uh, everything from the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and uh, efforts to expand healthcare in terms of Medicaid, uh, even before that, the Brown versus Board of Education, the acceptance of that. In other words, the society was still far from a, a just society, but we were moving in the direction of social justice because uh, the middle class was large and buoyant enough uh, to understand the importance of moving towards social justice. While we're on the topic of race, of course, there are protests going on everywhere right now. And you wrote in alternate, I, I really appreciated this juxtaposition that we keep hearing about looting, we keep hearing about looters, and we don't pay enough attention to the people who are consistently looting America. Uh, the big looters. The big looters. Uh, the, the people who are uh, not only looting their companies uh, by taking gigantic amounts of money and sometimes doing it illegally, but as I stressed before, even what is legal now uh, never used to be legal. I mean, buybacks, stock buybacks, for example, were never legal before 1983. Uh, and they were considered to be manipulations of stock uh, by insiders. Uh, now they're legal. Uh, they shouldn't be. There's a lot of insider trading going on that used to be illegal, but is now legal because, again, the people who have a lot of wealth and a lot of power have changed the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no mystery about where a lot of billionaires are coming from and why billionaires have made so much money since the start of the pandemic. A study just uh, a few days ago found that uh, roughly $534 billion increase in the wealth of the billionaire class in this country since the start of the pandemic. Where did that come from? Well, it's pretty easy to understand. Not only insider trading and the kinds of looting that I was talking about before, but also a different kind of looting, which we were referring to before, and that is monopolization, uh, mm -hmm. charging people more than a competitive market would charge, and also keeping wages lower than a competitive market would put wages at. Let's go back to more with, with COVID per se, and the economy is dependent on workers, lowest level workers to mid-level workers, and they're already feeling threatened and expendable. You have slaughterhouse workers who are getting sick and dying, you have the grocery clerks in the front lines and the stockers, and I'm wondering if inadvertently that might make the corporations do something that's right because they can't afford to lose all their workers. So is it possible we might see them do something more supportive? Well, certainly, certainly, Angie, that big corporations are very mindful of their brand and the goodwill that attaches to the brand. So they will do a lot of symbolic things, and they are doing a lot of symbolic things uh, in terms of announcing major investments in 
this community or that needy community or, or investing in a bread line or, or making food donations and doing all kinds of things. What they will not do uh, is what you're suggesting. Uh, they will not be better uh, employers. They will not be, uh, make any structural changes. They have as many people, I mean, with unemployment as high as it now is, uh, there is an almost infinite supply, they feel, of fungible hourly workers. Mm. Uh, when I say fungible, I mean that's how a lot of American companies regard uh, their hourly workers. That is, if, uh, if he won't do it, she won't do it, we'll find somebody else to do it. Right. Uh, and that's, that's a problem. Uh, I, I want to stress in terms of safety issues, because I used to, as Secretary of Labor, I, was, I supervised something called the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. Uh, if you don't have OSHA setting hard and clear standards for worker safety uh, in a pandemic, and it does, OSHA does have the wherewithal, the legal wherewithal, the legal authority to do that, mm. uh, then who's going to do it? OSHA has basically punted. I mean, the current OSHA is not doing it at all. Uh, there are certain states that have little state OSHAs that are trying to do it, but it's very, very difficult to do it. Meanwhile, you have an attorney general, uh, William Barr, and his boss, Donald Trump, who are saying that we want immunity for companies. The only way we will agree to another round of basically unemployment uh, supplemental un unemployment insurance for uh, workers is if you give companies immunity from liability for the possibility that a worker might get sick and sue the company. Well, you see, if you give them immunity from liability and you have no standards and no uh, enforcement of any standards, then why would a company, when the company can get as many workers as it wants from wherever it wants, why would a company go over and bend over backwards to provide a healthy and safe working environment? The answer is it wouldn't, and it won't, and they're not. How are you not furious every day? Well, I think that uh, I am furious every day, and it, 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 it pushes me to do a lot of the work I do. Uh, but I, 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 what I worry about is people who are not furious. Uh, and I think that uh, a lot of us are getting worn down. I mean, I mm -hmm. talk with people every day who are wallowing in anxiety and depression and despair. Uh, and I think that being outraged and furious is a better alternative. Uh, but you see, it's it, one of the problems that many people have right now, and I, and I want to suggest that Maybe some of the people who are watching may experience this as well, is, is the feeling of vulnerability combined with powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Because that really is a cause for not only anxiety, but also depression. When you feel vulnerable and you feel like there's nothing you can do about it, uh, then um, uh, you know, the, human, the human species, the human beings, uh, really uh, uh, kind of shut down. Many people do, not everybody, but, but it's easy to shut down. Uh, this is why I think it's so important to be active in a, in a political way right now. We're, we're four and a half months away from what, uh, you know, we always say the next election is the most important election in our lifetimes, but this really is a big one. This is really critically important. 
And I want to urge everyone uh, not to feel beaten down, even though you sometimes do, not to feel powerless. Uh, you have a lot of power. Uh, and to spend as much time as you can over the next four and a half, five months, mobilizing, joining with others, uh, and organizing and energizing yourself and others in terms of these very important electoral contests ahead of us. A week ago, Joe Biden was at the Poor People's Campaign, uh, a rally of theirs, and he literally went straight from the Poor People's Campaign to a Wall Street fundraiser at a Manhattan penthouse of uh, investor Jim Chanos, and he has a net worth of almost $15 billion. And he told them they're great guys. So we already know that we fared badly under Trump, but now we have someone who's still cultivating the gazillionaire. So where does that put us? Well, it puts us in a, in not a great position, Angie, but let's put it, let's, let me be very, very candid and, and, and frank with you. Uh, we cannot make, as the old saying goes, the perfect, the enemy of the better. Uh, I really believe that Donald Trump is a clear and present danger yes. uh, to our democracy. Uh, Joe Biden is not. I mean, Joe Biden, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry that he's taking big money. Uh, I could probably argue that if he didn't, uh, he might have a harder time uh, up against a lot of big money that's coming into Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, I hope that Joe Biden, uh, when he is elected, if he's elected, I hope that he will be a champion of campaign finance reform. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, if there are enough people who are pushing him to do that, he will. Uh, but uh, I, I am not a purist about this. In this particular situation, in these dire straits we're in, uh, with somebody who's attacking democracy and somebody whose incompetence has resulted in... Uh, tens of thousands of deaths unnecessarily of mm -hmm. Americans. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, hold him. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to be intolerant of him uh, getting money from some rich people. Yeah. Okay. Understandable. When you look at the election coming up, we've actually had two people ask about whether you're concerned Donald Trump will attempt to fix the, the election. I'm very concerned about it. I'm concerned about it because, uh, number one, his history. I mean, what he did in 2016 uh, was we don't know exactly what the deal he made with uh, Putin was or if he made a deal, but undoubtedly Putin did interfere. Uh, the intelligence community tells us that Putin is interfering once again. Russia is right now seeking to interfere in our election. Uh, but I'm worried, uh, John, you know, John Bolton and several other people, uh, including... Uh, that fellow Stone, Roger Stone, uh, and uh, in fact, almost everybody who's been associated with Trump, now that I think about it, has warned about Donald Trump's inability and unwillingness to lose. Uh, he, even in 2016, when he won uh, the Electoral College, but he lost the popular vote by three million votes, uh, he set up a commission to try to find fraud. And he, and he said that it was, those three, three million votes were fraudulent. Uh, Donald Trump does not believe in democracy. Uh, and somebody who doesn't believe in democracy and only believes in himself will undoubtedly do everything possible uh, to stay in office, including contest the election. Uh, and maybe uh, if that doesn't work, maybe find whatever legal ways he can to, uh, 
illegally, unconstitutional, uh, unconstitutionally stay in office. I think it's a huge problem. I want to go back to what happens in a post-COVID economy when people are going to continue to struggle. We've already established that the oligarchs are not going to struggle. They're not going to have any problem at all. Uh, we've also established that they're not going to be looking out for the little guy who are essentially replaceable cogs. So where do the unions fit into all this? Well, remember, the unions are very weak in the United States in contrast to other nations and in contrast to our own past. I mean, in the 1950s, 35% of American workers in the private sector were unionized. Today, 6.4% of private sector workers are unionized. We went from 35% to 6.4%. When you have only 6.4% of private, sectors uni private sector uh, workers unionized, there's not much of a voice. And it's very easy for employers, for companies, to intimidate unions, to say uh, to workers, if you try to form a union, uh, we're moving. We're going to uh, uh, another state that doesn't allow unions or discourages unions, uh, or we're going to outsource your job or whatever. Uh, so when you ask the question, what can unions do or what should unions do, you have to understand this is all, everything that we are talking about tonight is about power mm -hmm. uh, and unions no longer have the countervailing power they had four or five, six decades ago. You're listening to In Deep. Economist, activist, and author Robert Reich is my guest. His latest book is The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fix It. In Deep is a collection of both live and recorded interviews. Many of those are produced live online by Kepler's Literary Foundation in Menlo Park, California. You can find upcoming events online, including interviews with David Eagleman, Adam Grant and Ben Cohen, and Rick Riordan. Look for dates and information at keplers.org. That's keplers.org. We'll be right back. Fast enough so we can fly away. You gotta make a decision. He 
leave tonight and live and die this way. It's In Deep. I'm Angie Coiro. Thank you for tuning in. My guest is economist Robert Reich. His new book is The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fix It. He's currently on Netflix with the documentary Saving Capitalism. Coming up in a few minutes, his prescription for effecting real change with the election. First, back to audience questions. Talking about power, and you can assume that one who is educated might have more power, but we've got a constant denigration of those who managed to achieve a higher education. We've heard about the elite who are disregarding what's important for America. Tony has that question. I really believe this picked up, under, picked up steam under Reagan, the dumbing down of America. I feel education is critical to taking back the country. So let's talk about education first as a critical component of where we are now and the denigration of education and the decrying of people who are educated as out-of-touch elites? Well, first of all, uh, education is not just a private investment. I think that's the way we think about, certainly, college education. Uh, Education is a public good. In a democracy, it is necessary. Uh, And we went uh, from, uh, in the 19th century, having six years and then eight years of public education required up till uh, having 11 and then 12 years of public education required. And then with our community colleges and our public universities, uh, we almost got to the point where we had 16 years of publicly financed education. Not quite, we didn't quite get there. We almost got there in the late 60s. Uh, But education has got to be understood as a public good. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the denigration of well-educated people, that that comes from a different, that's a different issue and a different source. Um, That really comes from a a, a suspicion, a populist, let's call it a populist anger and suspicion uh, of people who are well-educated, that they are elites who are controlling the system Uh, and rigging the system for the benefit of themselves and against average people who don't have, let's say, college degrees. I think that's a perversion of what is actually happening. What's actually happening is there is, in fact, a wealthy elite. And that wealthy elite, as I've talked about, has and is continuing to rig the system. Uh, But that wealthy elite is not necessarily well-educated. Most of them are, but it's not because they're well-educated that they're rigging the system. They're rigging the system because the system can be rigged and they have the wealth to do the rigging. Uh, If you look at the top, probably 10 to 40% of Americans who have a college degree, uh, they are not really rigging the system to their own benefit. I think that most progressives Uh, who are concerned about social justice. Uh, They are people who not only respect education, but want everyone to have the benefit of an education. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the only way that we can begin to spread prosperity in this country is to make equal opportunity a reality. Uh, And finally, my third point on this is that ever since Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 Supreme Court case that declared that separate segregated education is not equal education. Uh, We've been struggling with this issue 
Uh, and unfortunately, over the last few decades, we've slid backwards. Yes. Uh, now, uh, it's very, very likely that a black child is going to be in a school that is predominantly black. Uh, we've slid back to what was the rule, uh, the de jure rule, uh, in the South uh, before 1954. Uh, and we also don't provide our poor children, who are predominantly Black and Latino, with nearly uh, as much per capita education spending as we do the children of relatively well-off parents, or very well-off parents, which is, I think, a scandal. Most other countries do it the other way. Uh, the poorer you are, the more per capita spending uh, on your education in your community. Mm -hmm. Is there any such thing as a moral economy? Well, there certainly can be, if by a moral economy, you mean an economy that's working for everyone, or at mm -hmm. least establishes equal opportunity and equal political rights. Uh, to me, th those are the two hallmarks of what a moral economy would be. And you can't have one without the other. If there's not equal political rights, you're never going to get to equal opportunity. And if there's not equal opportunity, you're certainly not going to get to equal political rights. Uh, unfortunately, we have slid over the last 40 years away from equal opportunity and equal political rights. Uh, it's not capitalism per se. Uh, you know, there are some places, the Nordic countries, for example, uh, that uh, are, to me, examples of capitalism that works uh, for most people on the principles of equal opportunity and equal political rights. Uh, I would say that uh, you don't have that any longer in the United States. Mm -hmm. Assuming a change in administration, William says, how long will it take to undo the damage of the current administration? The Iraq nuclear deal, the Paris Accord, environmental regulations, tax giveaways, I mean, there's a huge mountain. So where do we start with that? And do you think it can be undone? I, at one level, it certainly can be undone. Uh, if the Democrats win back the Senate and keep the House and win the presidency, uh, I think we will see very rapidly reversals in all those areas. Uh, but there is a deeper question, and that is the moral authority of the government of the United States uh, in the world and even in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, the moral authority of the presidency, uh, the, the, the deepening divisions and suspicions that Donald Trump and his presidency has, has, have sown uh, in the country. I, I think that really they will all take years and years to heal. A number of people asking about the police, police unions, and uh, I don't know if you know uh, Tom Neuberger from the Down With Tyranny blog, but I found something interesting in his blog, he quotes a history professor who says, the police were created to protect the new form of wage labor capitalism that emerged in the mid to late 19th century from the threat posed by that system's offspring, the working class. And I wonder if you see persistent class issues in police enforcement. Well, I, I see race issues in police enforcement, um, and I think they are larger than class issues. Although, Angie, as we talked about before, there are important relationships between race and class. Uh, but the police uh, tend to be, particularly the white police, tend to be from the, a working class. They are working class. Uh, you mentioned police unions. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I think that police unions, when they depart from their role of protecting workers, protecting the, the wages and the immediate working conditions of police, and get into politics and start uh, really being a force opposing reforms of police practices in communities, and then they're overstepping their roles, and I think they're having a very negative and dysfunctional role. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher says, hard times sometimes favor the incumbent through social conservatism and fear. Could Trump cultivate and capitalize on the drastic conditions of 2020 to pull off an actual reelection for all the wrong reasons? He's trying to. Uh, if you look almost day by day, I mean, he, he, he's, he's throwing up against the wall whatever will stick. One day it's law and order. Uh, the next day it's China and China's you know, role in all of this. Uh, the next day uh, he attacks the World Health Organization. Uh, the next day uh, he plays the racist card and he goes after the, what he calls the thugs on the street. I mean, he's, he's doing everything he can to try to find uh, a responsive cord. Uh, it's like a tuning fork, uh, but fortunately he's not really finding it. Uh, In fact, uh, if polls can be believed, and after what we went through in 2016, we've got to be quite skeptical, but it does look like he's losing uh, support, even among many, many independents that were leaning toward him uh, even five weeks ago. And I think the core reason he's losing support is that his incompetence and his administration's incompetence in dealing with the pandemic Uh, transcends ideology. It transcends all of his uh, his sort of uh, tending to his racist uh, uh, ploys. Uh, If you are an independent who has lost your job uh, and you are worried about the coronavirus, uh, you you can't help but see how incompetent Donald Trump and his administration has been. What can we do, any number of people are asking, beyond just voting, what's the one most effective thing a citizen can do to fight our rigged system? Get other people to vote. Voting and mobilizing other people to vote. Uh, Beyond that, uh, between now and election day, there are things you can do. Inform yourself about down-ballot races. There are important gubernatorial races, senatorial races, Uh, There are races for the House. Uh, Again, you can indirectly be involved in them. You can make your voice heard. We're closing in on time. Let's do two more questions here. Uh, A number of people, including Zach, are asking about a wealth tax and the heredity tax. How effective would a wealth tax be solving the problem of this mass income and wealth inequality? And someone's asking about a 100% inheritance tax as well. Can you address those? Well, we're not going to get to a 100% inheritance tax, but we should have a wealth tax. Uh, Elizabeth Warren presented a very well-crafted, carefully researched wealth tax that would have a significant impact on widening inequality. Uh, and it would also generate a lot of revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the inheritance tax, the estate tax, has been demagogued by Republicans for years as a so-called death tax but it only touches the very, very top. It doesn't really affect 
anybody else, and it should be increased, uh, and the number of people who are affected by it should be, should, we should have a larger number. Uh, thirdly, along the same lines, we need to raise the capital gains taxes on somebody's death. Right now, and I don't want to get too wonky on you, but right now, the basis of all of their assets uh, are raised to market value on their debts so that they can provide their heirs uh, with a lot of assets uh, without paying any capital gains. Nobody pays capital gains. And that's how you have these fortunes that are moving uh, from uh, extraordinarily wealthy boomers uh, to their, uh, their, their millennial offspring. Uh, in the, something in the order of $40 trillion over the next 20 years. Uh, and uh, this is going to make uh, inequality far worse. Well, in fact, you hear about those families setting up philanthropic organizations, and there are problems with uh, philanthropy as well when they're decided by, you know, one small layer of the populace. Uh, yes, and, and, and they're doing it for tax reasons, obviously. Um, even the so-called charitable deduction, Angie, and I'm going to say something that is controversial, but I've, if I haven't stirred any controversy so far in this hour, I won't have been doing my job. Uh, I think that the charitable deduction really needs to be limited to what we consider to be charities, uh, to uh, direct contributions to groups that help the poor. Uh, I just don't see the reason for allowing the charitable contribution to be used for all sorts of other purposes, uh, including uh, museums and art galleries and, and a lot of things that we like, uh, cultural uh, kinds of uh, palaces that, that we, we enjoy, but that are not really designed for the poor. Uh, Luis asks, is all the spending by the government due to COVID-19, will it create inflation in the future? No, uh, there's no sign of inflation. Uh, you get inflation only when you have um, full employment or near full employment, uh, when all of your industrial and office capacity is filled up. We are now so far away from that, it's, it's hard to even believe how far away we are. We're, we're as far away from full capacity as we were in the worst days of the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, there is no inflation anywhere to be seen. Uh, and if anything, government needs to spend more. Uh, the amount government is spending now uh, relative to what needs to be spent to get this economy back on track is very, very small. Remember, so far the government has spent around $3 trillion. That may sound like a huge amount, but we used to be, at least as of January or February this year, a $21 trillion economy. We are now a, a much smaller economy. So we've got to have government as the spender of last resort, spending more to get this economy moving again. Uh, one final note, uh, Angie, even if government were spending more right now, as long as we have a coronavirus crisis, mm -hmm. many people rationally are not going to be out in malls and in shops, and they're not going to be uh, in air travel, they're not going to be in planes, they're not going to be doing a lot of things that they might otherwise be doing. So th that is the major drag on the economy right now. I saved the last question about the end of saving capitalism. And of all things, you danced through the credits, which was 
fabulous. Um, you have some kick-ass moves, which I kind of didn't expect. <laughs> but um, I have to ask you, at the same time you were saying over the credits, that we have to have fun. There are specific things you recommend. And the last one you say is to have fun. And I want to ask you with this immersion you have and everything that's going wrong, how do you have fun and how do you keep a sense of joy and hope with all that you see? Uh, well, I teach and I love my students and I love teaching. Now I've been teaching remotely since March. It's not as much fun, uh, but I like teaching. It, 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 uh, young people are inspiring. Uh, you know, I've been teaching for uh, over 40 years and the present generation of young people uh, is the most committed to positive social change, to social justice, to uh, changing this country of any generation of young people I've ever taught. And so, you know, every time I feel down, uh, I, I just talk to them and, and I hear their questions and I interact with them. So that's the biggest point. Uh, dancing also helps. Uh, there are not many, many opportunities uh, to <laughs> dance under present circumstances. Um, but uh, I also do a lot of reading of history. Uh, and anybody who is feeling terribly uh, down about this country, uh, I urge you to read about American history. Uh, not only what we did in the 1930s uh, and what we accomplished in the 1940s and 50s, uh, but also uh, what happened after the Gilded Age of the late 19th century. The mm -hmm. Progressive Era uh, is a story of this country really reforming itself in a very fundamental set of ways. Thank you for a whole hour of your time. I'm so grateful. I'm so glad. And I appreciate it. I'm sure I'm thanking you for everybody in the audience. Well, thank you, Angie. And thank you, uh, Kepler's Literary Foundation, for sponsoring this. Robert Reich, in conversation with me June 23rd of this year. In addition to his 19 books, he's been the subject of two documentaries. He was President Bill Clinton's Secretary of Labor. He also served under Presidents Ford and Carter and was part of Barack Obama's transition team. He's the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. His website is robertreich.org. Our interview was conducted for and recorded by Kepler's Literary Foundation, a nonprofit with the mission to engage, enrich, and inspire our community. You can find coming events at keplers.org. We would love to hear from you about our shows. Send your comments, questions, and suggestions to info at indeepradio.com. That's info at indeepradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at indeepradio. At KALW, our board operator announcer is Damian Minor. KALW's general manager is Tina Pamantuan. The executive director of Kepler's Literary Foundation is Gene Forstner. Events manager is Amber Clark. In Deep's founding producer is Gordon Whiting. Our closing music is by David Gans. I'm Angie Coiro. Thanks for tuning in to In Deep. Before it gets better, but I know it's going to get better.